Well, this morning we're going to be we're going to be out of James, and we're going to be coming at Palm Sunday from kind of a different direction than probably you've seen it come at before. You see, at the at the heart of Palm Sunday is this passage that we read in Luke and parallels in other accounts, and so. If you have two pieces of paper, go ahead and put one in Matthew 21 and put the other in Psalm 2, because we're going to be going back and forth a little bit this morning. Now, as we go into this Passion Week, what we see is is things are are rapidly coming to an end for Jesus' earthly ministry. They're rapidly coming to an end. We, We know that in just a few days, He will be crucified, that He will be taken off the cross, that He will be entered into the tomb. But what we see in the triumphal entry, and we're going to be reading from Matthew 21, is kind of some foreshadowing of what's about to come. Let me read for us the first 11 verses of chapter 21. He says, Now when he drew near to Jerusalem (coughs) and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. And he will send them away at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. These are the words of the prophet Zechariah written hundreds of years before this. The disciples in verse 6 And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on their put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches, and the trees spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's he's headed into the city. And and this word that the prophet Zechariah spoke hundreds of years before has come to pass. The disciples go in. They take Jesus at his word that, that they're going to go, they're going to untie this donkey and colt, and the owner is not going to bust out a colt on them and try and say, you know, what are you doing? What are you, why are you taking this animal? So the guy comes out and says, what are you doing? They say, the Lord has told us that we can have these. I mean, it's amazing the things that God is orchestrating up until this point to bring to pass what has been the plan from here on out. And so Jesus is, is, is on the animal, they're, they're riding in, and what's his response like? How are people receiving him? Man, they're, they're overjoyed. They're taking their coats, they're throwing them down on the ground, they're allowing this, this donkey to trample over the robes that they're going to have to put back on. I mean, it's not like they throw them down and say, well, that's my, that's my spare robe. Nobody really knew that. I thought he was coming today, so I wore my spare robe. It had holes in it already. It's not like they have some type of GE hybrid energy steam washer and dryer at home where they walk home and they're like, man, Jesus' donkey rode over this, but GE through steam technology is going to make it all better again. No. He finishes walking over them. They pick up the dirty robe. 
they put it back on. I mean, this is the type of humility that they practice before him. They take branches and they're cutting them down and they're throwing them down in a display of welcoming, in a display of just awe at who Jesus is. And this is the display, this is the welcoming that Jesus receives when he begins to enter Jerusalem. But I submit to you that these people had a misunderstanding of who Jesus was. I submit to you that these people that that took their, their garments and they threw them down on the ground, that took plants and they cut them and threw them down on the ground, had a completely false idea of who Jesus was, of who Jesus is. And because of that, they completely missed everything. Now flip over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is pretty evidently a psalm about David. So what we see is that the the psalmist is writing this, whether David or somebody about David, and they're writing this, and in the near view, they've got David in mind, clearly. But when they look at the horizon of Revelation, they have the Lord's true Son. They have Christ, God's Son, in mind. And so let's look at this and try and get a picture and an understanding of what type of king God would send. Reading the first three verses, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so what we see in, in, in David is that the establishment of his kingdom, right? We see the establishment of his kingdom, and those that are surrounded, or those that have Israel surrounded, look at that, and they, they just don't like it. They feel oppressed, they feel subjugated, they're, oh, just, they, they're frustrated at the fact that, that God and his anointed have put structures around them, have, have put some type of restriction on their, what they deem is their freedom and their access to do whatever they want to do. And so we read that, that they are angry about it. They rage in verse 1. The nations rage. And what does it say the peoples do? It says the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Now this isn't just the aristocracy coming together. This isn't just the the kings and the rulers get coming together. We also see it's, it's the people around them. That there is widespread discord, unrest, angst, uneasiness about this king. This king that God has established. But the Psalms just gives us a key to understanding this. It says, why do they rage and why do they plot? And what's the word he says about it? He says, it's in vain. Why do they do this in vain? You see, it's not that they're, they're, they're dim-witted. It's not that they didn't have vast armies to control. It's not that they had never engaged in this type of warfare before. It's that they had never engaged in warfare against this type of king before. God's anointed. And because they are plotting ultimately against God, their efforts are in vain. 
See, they're not going to overcome this king. They're not going to catch this king by surprise. They're not going to catch this king busy in a different part of his kingdom and unable to exercise complete control, power, and authority over their best laid plans. And so their efforts are in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Man, don't we see that today? Don't we see that in in this increasing move towards secularization, an increasing move towards really just discounting Christianity, discounting God, his place in the market, his place in government, his place in education, his place in the way that we lead and guide our families? Don't we see not just just people coming together, but, but nations coming together to set themselves up to be opposed to God? If you don't see that, you, you don't read the paper very much or, or have, you know, Yahoo as your homepage or go to the Drudge Report or any of these types of things, Fox News, CNN, you should see this. You, you're kind of scaring me because very few people are nodding. Do you see this? Hey, there you go. You guys, I don't know, maybe it's a Greenville thing, you know. <clears throat> you nod, right, when you, when you agree. So we see this. This is clearly evident. That, that men, that, that women, that people are opposed to God, that they're trying to, to put things in place to restrict God and restrict His access to certain areas of our lives and the control over all of these things to restrict the movement of God. And so we read that and, and we begin to think, well, what, is, what is God up to? How does God respond to this type of behavior? Well, I mean, it's... It's pretty crazy. I mean, when we look at verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. (laughs) God looks down from heaven and he sees man wholeheartedly bent to do all kinds of evil, wholeheartedly bent to just remove God from every facet of our lives, to remove his anointed, those that he's put in place to lead from having any impact. God chortles. God sputters a little bit. God, he, he laughs. I don't know how else to say this. I mean, it's one of these things where you read it and it would be like, and God took a deep breath and said, mm, that's going to hurt. But no, I mean, God looks at this. God sees all of the armies amassing. He sees the spears being made, the swords being made. He sees charioteers, you know, readying themselves. He sees governments and people moving against him. And he looks at them and he looks at their activities and their energies being poured into this. And he laughs. I mean, really? You laugh? I mean, this is such an awesome display of God. But when we look at it another time, verse 4 says, He who sits in heaven laughs. Man, this is a reminder that God is in heaven. God is not busy walking the earth, ensuring that things are where they're supposed to be. It's a reminder that this this movement against God hasn't even spurred God to stand and to come out in rage in some awesome display of power that we would expect. But God's sitting down. He observes it. He sees all. And he laughs. says he holds them in derision. He sees the the vanity, the absolute ridiculousness of what what they're attempting to do. And this is the display of power that God offers. It says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and his anger, 
and will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. You see, this is God's awesome display of power. It's not that he looks at them and and just comes out and destroys everything about them. But when God musters the forces of heaven, he does so in a word. When God musters the power and control and authority to overcome the best that man can throw at him, what he offers is a word. And friends, that word is that he has established his king. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Now for the Israelites that read this, they are reminded that their king, that David, is not a king because out of some broad selection committee came and they found the one who was most able to control the kingdom. It's not because some broad selection committee came through and they tracked out the one with royal blood, but when they follow their king, they're doing so as they follow God. That this is a king that has had the anointing of God rest on him. That this is a king who has been chosen by God himself. And for you and I today, as we think about this, and we think of Christ, we think about the Messiah, the anointed one of God, we think of Christ, that he is the one that God has spoken And the word of God, Jesus, is the king that we put our trust in. The word of God, Jesus, is the one who sits on the holy hill. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, in David, this is, this is a remembrance that when the prophet came in and, and David is talking about, David essentially says, man, I want to do something for God. He said, I live in a, in a house of cedar. I want to do something from God. He said, everywhere we go, God has just dwelt in this tent. I mean, it's, it's nice as tents go, but I live in this awesome house, and God lives in a really nice six-man Coleman tent. I mean, I, I want to do something better for him. The so prophet says, well, okay. Let me talk to God. Let me see what God says about that. prophet comes back. David, you can't do that. You're a man of blood. You're a man of war. You will not be the one to do this. Your son will build God this tremendous building, this tremendous this thing that, that your son will be the one to do that. But David... God makes this promise to you that you will never lack for someone to sit upon the throne. That this lineage will continue forever. And friends, this isn't just a promise to David that he will have a human heir. But this is God speaking through Nathan, telling us today even that through the line of David, the Messiah will come. That through the line of David, the eternal one would be born. That through the line of David, humanity would be rescued, that through the line of David, he would have begotten Christ. So for David, David becomes this this king with this preserving lineage, but for Christ, we see that his kingdom is eternal. For Christ, we see that his kingdom is everlasting. 
And he says in verse 8, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. I mean, this is, this is great news for an earthly king, right? That, that their kingdom is, is going to continue to expand, that their kingdom doesn't end at the border of the next kingdom. I mean, this is, this is great news. If you're a king and, and you don't mind mowing a really big yard, this is good news because your kingdom can continue to expand. He says, ask of me, speaking to David, I'll make the nations your heritage. Ask of me, and I will expand the boundaries of your kingdom so far and so wide. See, for David, that's just, his life is still just but a passing mist and a vapor. But we look to Christ, and in Christ's anointed that, to ask, and that God would make the nations his heritage. Man, we're reminded that Christ is the agent of creation, that Christ is the very radiance of God, that Christ is the image of God. We're reminded that we are the recipients of grace, that we are evidence that Christ asked for the nations, that that salvation extended beyond Israel, that salvation was extended to the Gentiles, and that we are brought into the covenant people of God because God was merciful because God chose to extend grace to those. He says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the end of the earth your possessions. Now in verse 9, he says, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, there's this idea that, that we want Jesus meek and mild, right? I mean, we, we love singing about that at Christmas, that I mean, he's this little baby, and man, he, he's so cute and cuddly, and his dirty diapers don't stink like everybody else's, and he, he doesn't cry at night, because he's, I mean, he's, he's Jesus the baby. I mean, he's, he's great. And so we, we take that, and we put that on the man. And we think about Jesus, who, he just, I mean, he's just a nice guy. You just love talking to him and interacting with him, because he doesn't make demands of us. He doesn't. Jesus would never do anything silly like telling us to lay down our lives. Jesus would never do anything so offensive to say that, that our lives are on our own, but they're his. But you see, here we read in verse 9. That Jesus rules with a rod of iron. And you see, when we set ourselves up opposed to him, when we set ourselves in opposition to Christ and we, we put safeguards in our lives and we, we, we sanction off those things, with, God, you can have most of my life, but you can't have my business. God, you can have most of my life, but you can't have where I live. You can't have how I spend my money. You can't have how I spend my free time. That he takes that rod of iron and he beats the snot out of it. I mean, he, he bashes it all to pieces. And some of us are so busy trying to hold on to those things that that rod of iron is slamming us down in the head over and over again. That God through Christ is trying to call us into repentance, that he's trying to call us into a deeper obedience with himself. But we are so busy holding on to the fragments of this kingdom that we think is ours. That we refuse to let it go. And on the results of this, in verse 10, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with great trembling. You see, God has, has written this for those in David's age as a warning. He writes to them, he says, this is how God is going to act. He has set his king, and this is what that king will do. He says, take warning, take notice of these things. That God is going to act in this way. Be wise. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, this is, a, this is a notice to you and I that we can absolutely, absolutely take comfort in the fact that Christ is at work. We can absolutely take comfort in the fact that Christ is the one providing, that Christ is the one giving protection and provision. But on top of that, we absolutely better take note. And that this is a warning that still stands. So if you're not out there, if you're not sharing the gospel with those you bump into, you're not extending that warning. You're not extending that message that there is protection in the salvation of Christ. See, I met with a man in my office this week. Guy's got cancer for the second time. Lost his wife in December. I mean, just life is not good for this guy. And so I met with him in my office, and we're talking, and I asked him, I said, so Steve, what do you think happens when you die? He just said, you know, I don't, I don't know. Probably nothing. And so we begin to talk about the gospel, and we begin to talk about God and, and how he ordained life and death and how he holds both of them in his hands. And this man goes on to tell me what a good person he is. He says, Steve, I hear that from you, but God demands absolute perfection. And we go on and on, we go round and round, and I am pleading with this man to surrender his pride, to surrender the fact that he thinks he's such a good person. He's not even willing to relent that. Friends, we need to be busy warning those around us that there is a king on the throne, and that king demands our honor. He demands our obedience. He extends to us salvation, but he demands obedience. We are to serve the Lord with fear. So we don't serve him with ambivalence. We don't serve him when we want to. We don't serve him even in the, the way that we want to. So we don't mandate the way that we serve God. But when we come to God, we say, I will serve you wholeheartedly. I will serve you how you call me to serve. We don't set structure, we don't set boundaries on our service to God. We serve God according to how He calls us. We serve God to the uttermost. It says, serve Him with great fear. It says, rejoice with trembling. We rejoice in the fact that God has set His King on Zion, that God has our provision, holds our life in His hand. And we rejoice in the goodness of the Son. And then he writes to them in verse 12, he says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. You see, it was very common in, in, in the day of David for the various kingdoms to, to build an idol, to build a, a god in their own making. And one of the ways they showed respect to this god is they would come up to it and they would lock lips on this thing. as a way of showing homage and respect. 
And so this is what the psalmist is calling them to. He says, you've created gods, you've created deities, you've created these things, and you have shown them deference and respect by walking up and kissing them. I want you to do the one thing that's the most insulting thing to your way of life, to your way of worship. You're going to kiss the sun. All the respect and all the honor that you've played on all these other areas of your life, you're going to throw them out the window. You're going to become a traitor to your former way of existence, and you're going to wholesale buy into the sun. You're going to show him the highest honor that you can possibly afford. You're going to kiss the sun. And then he comes back with this word of warning again. He says, you're going to do this, or his wrath is going to be quickly kindled. You're going to do this, or you're going to suffer the wrath of the Son. And then the Psalms just comes back to it with one last refrain. He says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we are blessed today to take refuge in the Son. We are blessed today to take refuge in Christ. Now as these people saw Jesus come in, flipping back over to Matthew, Man, they saw Jesus come in and they are just overwhelmed with joy. It says the whole city was stirred up in verse 10. Now, this word stirred up makes it sound like you know, Jesus is a, he's a minor celebrity coming into town and people are just a little bit excited. They've, certain people have t-shirts made, other people have some, some butterflies in their stomach. But when we look at what this word is really trying to communicate... This, this same idea is used to describe an earthquake. This same idea is used to describe colossal outbreak in heaven with lightning and thunder. This is the type of excitement that these people have. It's just a complete a buzz in the city and everybody is so bent to understand and to come see who this person is. That they throw their robes down, that they, they cut branches down, that they throw those down. And they're crying out, Hosanna to God in the highest. They're saying, God, save us. They're, they're praising, they're singing adoration to this man, and they say, glory be to God. Because they think he's their Savior. You see, Jesus comes in and they think, finally, oh my goodness, finally the Savior's here. Man, the, the, I might as well call my Roman friends and tell them to start packing. Because it's... it's I mean, it's not going to be long. He's coming in and he's doing everything that we thought he would do. A little different way. But he's finally here. The Romans are gone. We're going to have our own destiny back. We're going to be able to do the things that we've always wanted to do. I bet he comes back in and he, oh man, I bet he builds the, the tabernacle to be as splendid as it was in the days of Solomon. I bet he restores us to the height of our empire. I bet he restores us to the height of everything we ever expected. But you see, when Jesus didn't come out to be the king they expected, you see, when Jesus showed up and he didn't bring this type of mass army and upheaval that they wanted, that they demanded, that they expected, that they had set all their hopes and dreams on, these same people, I crucify him. All the people that had thrown their robes on the ground, that had cut branches and thrown them and made such 
a display and a spectacle of themselves and been so overjoyed at his, the sight of his presence, some of the same group cried out days later, crucify him. You see, they had in their minds who the king should be and how the king should act. But when he didn't act in accordance with who they thought the Savior should be, they wanted nothing to do with him. And there are those of us in this room that when we came to salvation, we expected that Jesus would be this great blessing in our lives. That we wouldn't get sick again, that our bank account would do nothing but increase, that our children would do nothing but say, yes, sir, and no, sir, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And then when things begin to go wrong, we say, this isn't the king I wanted. This isn't the man of blessing that I wanted for my life. And we begin to say, I don't want anything to do with you. You see, and the scary thing is that there are even those of us in this room that we didn't receive salvation, what we received, or what we thought we were receiving was a blessing in our lives. Because we never, we never really understood what he was coming to save us from. See, the prophet Isaiah, writing in Isaiah 61, spoke a little bit about the Lord's favor. He said, when he comes, this Messiah will come to proclaim liberty. Well, he will bind up the brokenhearted. He will proclaim liberty to the captives. And he will open up the prisons to set free those who are bound. So you see, in the triumphal entry, Jesus begins to ring the death knell for sin. He begins to ring the death knell for, for sin and for death. And the liberty that he sets us free from, and the prison that he helps us to escape from is the prison of sin. You see, Jesus isn't about life enhancement. He is about life saving. Jesus isn't about making our lives better in the present, but he is about saving us from sin. The thing that we have the inability to overcome, to, to champion on our own, he does for us in his atoning death. You catch that? Friends, in service of this king, there's no room for doing it your way. In service of this king, there's no room for accommodation. Because in service of this king, he calls you to denounce your very way of existence. He calls you to lay down your very life and to humbly submit absolutely everything in the wake of being obedient and following him. Let me pray for us.